in singing that song at the end there, I, um, I hope those truths will resonate as we walk through the passage this morning. I cannot think, in, at least in, in, in my meditations on this passage, a more fitting song that reveals more fitting truth in relation to the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at for the next few moments together about walking by faith and running our race until the work is done. This morning we continue our journey through the book of Revelation by looking at the 11th chapter for the second time together this morning. If you'll turn there to Revelation 11. Uh, As we begin, I will take a look once again, the same point, the same truth that we looked at last week. And I think it will just continue to... Uh, be made more evident and self-evident from the passage this morning, this one point that I hope for all of us, regardless of some of the difficulties of working through the book of Revelation together, and even the specifics of something like a chapter 11 difficulty with some of the different images that are present and some of the challenges that we face, we can, I am sure, together be strengthened by the same comment and concern. And that is this, what I shared with you last week. God's power attends to God's word proclaimed through God's church. That is reality. That is truth. And it comes from this passage and it can strengthen each of us regardless of the little elements and images of how we read the passage. Together we can be strengthened by this same reality. God's power attends to God's word as it is proclaimed through God's church. I think of this burden. I, to be quite frank with you, had an opportunity yesterday that in my own feeling emotionally, as I relate to this instance, I was discouraged yesterday at an opportunity that I felt perhaps I was having to live this truth out. And for various reasons, this truth was further from my mind than the experience I was having in the moment. Instead of rising up in boldness, thinking in this moment, God's power attends to God's word, proclaimed through the church, a new covenant people who walk by faith and not by sight. Us, the church, And instead I read into this very moment my experience. Who this person is. What the context is in which we're in. The way in which the conversation was going to this point. And all these other factors. That then later reflecting upon in my own mind. I thought. I missed the essentials. In that moment. I let my experience. These other estimations of my own mind foreshadow cover over the reality that God's power attends to his word speak forth the gospel boldly compassionately speak to this individual about repentance instead experience one over in my estimations at that moment So I am refreshed yet again, reoriented as the Lord is teaching me once again, renewing within me the strength. So I hope to convey to you and encourage you in your walk with him as well as we see it in the truth of Holy Scripture. His power does attend his word. Speak forth his word. See the Lord attend with great power, proclaim through his people as they share the gospel. So I wish for you to see it together in a corporate witness of Revelation 11. Last week, as we look at the second portion of chapter 11, just by way of reminder, I was able to introduce to you the period of 42 months there, if you're looking in your Holy Scripture at verse um, 2. There is the number 42. I'll just begin reading. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that portion out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample this holy city for 42 months. And just by way of encouraging you who are visiting with us at Redeemer this morning, by way of remembrance of last week's message, will not somehow cover over this morning's message That is to say that unless you were here last week, you can't get today. That is not the case. 
I trust by God's grace you will too be strengthened in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that goes forward each and every time from each and every text. Yet, by way of those who were here last week as we go forward, we were able to introduce the 42 months, not strictly as we would read it right here and say, it must be 42 months, count them, one, two, three, and so forth. But rather, as we see in the passage, we will see again this morning, it is an age characterized by three things. So it's speaking of the kind of age, not the time of a specific 42, 30-day periods. But its character is being revealed. And the character of this 42-month age is characterized by three things. Number one, it is an age characterized as the final witness of the church. This is you and I right now. An age of final witness of the church. Matthew 28, the age has dawned. We're in, as the New Testament says again and again, the last days. Jesus says, this gospel will be proclaimed throughout the end of the earth, and then the end will come. An age, a last days era of gospel proclamation of the church to the gospel of the risen Lord. This is the characterization of this age with God's people, a final witness of the gospel of the risen Lord. Secondly, the portion that characterizes this age alongside of this final witness of the church to the gospel of Christ is a time of divine protection. We saw that from uh, there as we looked last week. Measure, rise and measure the temple of God. And we looked at the New Testament's understanding of the temple of God. What is the temple? Better yet, who is the temple? Rise and measure the people of God, the worshipers of Christ. Seal them. Revelation chapter 7. It's a time of final witness. And in that witness, the church has divine protection. He has set his hedge about her. Yet as we look, no matter how secure in the promises of Christ spiritually, we are yet vulnerable to attack in these last days. So as we preach forth the gospel as children of the promise, the prophets that foresaw the Christ who had come, the Messiah of God, And now as children of that promise, we speak forth that truth, yet there is a vulnerableness to that, which indeed will suffer persecution in this 42-month age. Finally, the third element that we were able to kind of see together about this 42-month age, along with witness and protection, it is that final component that I've been sharing. It's a time of pagan assault. This comes from various forms and in various manners and methods, but it is pagan, it is unbelief, it is satanically waged against Christ's holy city. And that is the comment of the church there in verse 3. Leave that portion out. Don't measure those who do not worship. Don't measure them. They're the outer court. They're outside the people of God. Leave that out. It's given over to the nations, and these nations will trample the holy city of God for 42 months. This age of Christ, the church, final witness, divine protection, yet pagan assault. Some will join with me to this point and say, okay, we saw last week, we heard last week, we saw how it's kind of uh, breaking down. Yet I do have a a certain couple of questions regarding this age of 42 months, and that is perhaps I will supply the question for you if yours is different. You're out of luck this morning. This is the question I'm providing for you that I'm imagining you're asking me. And that is, we would say together, okay, that's fine. You're with me. Okay, so it's an age. It's, a, it's beyond 42 specific 30-day units. But where does the number come from? Why 42? If it's an age, well, we could have said age myriads of ways. That's 10,000. 
Right? So, so why 42 or, or this other number that seems to be appearing with it? Because last week I was suggesting to you that we're going to read 1260. We're going to hear what's called a time, times and uh, uh, times, time and half a time. There it was. I'm getting all my metaphors and images overlapping. 1260 days and 42. Why not something else? Why it? And what is it communicating? that we would understand and learn of it in these three elements of the witness of the church, divine protection of Christ over his church, yet the vulnerability to pagan attack in these last days. But why the last days? 42. I hope this is your question this morning. And I would suggest to you in finding our answer, consider the context. Right? Maybe some of us have read our Bibles before and we have heard someone speak about the Bible and we heard this kind of language of context is... Anybody supply that term for me? King. King, right? So context is the king. The way that we're going to understand the parts is in light of the whole. So how can we begin to wrestle with this 42 in light of what? Context. So far we've been looking together at chapter 9, 10. Right now you're in chapter 11. And we're going into someday chapter 12. Thank you for that participation. So that's kind of how we're working. 9, 10, 11, and 12. And so we're, we're asking about questions about chapter 11. Where should we look? Chapter 11. Chapter 10, 9, and 12. This will help fill in the parts as we look at the whole. And so far as we've been looking in chapter 9, we've been seeing that there's the, there's the release, right? In chapter 9, there's the release of the, of the angel of the bottomless pit. He rises up and locusts are sent out. His minions, as it were, these demonic hosts, and are preying upon people. And we see these trumpets that are blasting and blowing and these judgments that are falling. And we found beautifully the principle again and again and again that I hope to encourage you with in your Bible reading. And that is the unity of the Bible. It's not one God here and another God expressing himself here and then this character Jesus who called himself God over here and then there's this other organism called the church over here and there's all these bits and pieces. But we see beautifully that's not the case. The Bible is a unity. A divine work of unity. And so as we look upon the history of the church, we find her history in the, what we just sang. Our forefathers roamed the earth looking to the promise. We're the children of promise. So we see unity in the Bible and its essential oneness of message. And in chapter 9, in light of what we read about the church experiencing these outpouring of demonic hosts and the angel of the bottomless pit and the trumpets are blasting judgments... Israel in Exodus, leaving Egypt, parallel accounts. We found the same plagues present in Egypt, in Israel, in God drawing them out, as we just read, as being poured out in this 42-month age with the church. Yet we look, so is the church going to be devoured in these judgments? Yet again, we looked at a parallel account. In Exodus, you remember Israel. Do you remember what we looked last week? Was Israel safe and cared for? Were they sealed of God and had a hedge of protection about them? Even with his judgments befalling the Egyptians right next to him? Yeah, they were. Heavy hailstone fell and killed even beasts trees and devoured the land, except for in the land of Gosh, where Israel was. And we see that exact parallel account taking place in the book of Revelation with the church. So now we're understanding the context. Our context of understanding this age of 42 months is going to be found in the same parallel account of Israel in the church. It wasn't just chapter 9 where this parallelism began between Israel coming out of Exodus and through these Egyptian plagues. But it also continued with Israel being brought out into the wilderness. Do you recall? When Israel came out into the wilderness experiences, we're seeing John trace out your present day histories in light of Israel's journeys in the Old Testament. 
and he continues beyond the Exodus. He then goes beyond the Exodus and he speaks of your wilderness wandering. And you find in Revelation 10 and with the book of Numbers that Israel was led in the wilderness by a cloud by day. And do you remember? Yes, I got that right. I was confused. Cloud by day, and then you recall at night they were led by, uh, can anyone supply for me? A pillar of fire, very good. So then you're, you're, you're reading now, Revelation 10, out of the Exodus, God is calling his people, Revelation 9, and now 10, and in 10 you see this magnificent individual appear in Revelation 10, and he's beautiful, he's magnificent, he's standing with one leg in the sea and one leg on the land, showing his sovereignty, and this beautiful description that is cast of him, that is almost too beautiful to take in. He's wrapped in a cloud and his legs are as killers of fire and his beauty is too much to take in like the rainbow that is beyond fighting out and he's sovereign over all the earth and he commands and makes it church of Jesus Christ, the witnessing community, is no longer like their forefathers in the wilderness where we are led by a shadow of things to come, a type of what is most beautiful and brilliant in leading us to him. The church is being led by him, being led by the reality of the things that were foreshadowed in our forefathers who roamed the earth. Looking forward, now he stands as resurrected, sovereign over all things. That's the image of his land, foot, and his foot in the sea. And he is caring for his church as we are led by his power. As he dwells, now not in a tabernacle, Revelation 11, but in the temple of the people. Dwells among you. The greatest fulfillment of this promise you're experiencing now is when one day you are joined to him in victory. And we'll find if you stay with us all the way to Revelation 21 or 22, we'll find that imagery finally coming to consummation. And guess what the imagery is? We're in the temple of God where he is our presence. Yet in these last days, we're living out that imagery with great victory through proclamation of the gospel. Yet we are in a difficult age of pagan assault and persecution as well. This is the parallel account. So as we think of, we see the parallel account of Exodus and Numbers. And now we see its fulfillment in the church and in Christ. We now have a context for beginning to understand where is the origin of of this number coming from. Would we now begin to think, well, number 42 must have just been picked haphazardly, has no redemptive context to it. Well, why would we suggest that? We have already seen that everything has context with Israel paralleling the church. Maybe the number 42 has the same meaning, the same context. There's a shared context between 42 in this age and the origin and the meaning of the number in the age of Israel. I hope to show you that that's the case this morning for the next couple of minutes, that the number 42's origin and meaning comes out of this same historical context of God leading Israel out of Egypt and into the wilderness wandering, where certainly there is challenge, warfare, and difficulty, yet God is among them, caring and protecting them. So we'll see with the church in this age of 42 marks as well. There is an image there in chapter 11 where I suggested to you last week, some people would say that there are two witnesses physically, two witnesses who are going to come in an age of tribulation. And that, the 
church age of tribulation, but a specific location of tribulation. For seven years, this earth is going to experience an outpouring unlike any other that is known as the time of great tribulation. And during this time, there will be two witnesses who will come. And these two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. They're going to speak forth the word with great power. And then they're going to be murdered. And then after being murdered, they're going to be laid in the streets somewhere in the earth. And the people are going to party around them and not give them burial rites. And then they're going to raise in physical resurrection. And then they are going to ascend. And the enemies are going to look upon them. I suggested to you so far that just like the foreshadow of the Old Testament, redemptive history is moving this way. We're not going this way. And then stopping on a dime, turning, and going this way. We're on a trajectory, brother and sister, going this way, all the way home. There is a better promise for us. We're not always supposed to be looking over our shoulder for when are we going to go back to the millennial kingdom where things will be right like they were in the Old Testament. We're going home. This, too, is in relation to Moses and Elijah. I suggested to you, and I would yet again, as I am right now, suggesting we're not waiting for Moses and Elijah. Yet there is imagery being communicated there about Moses and Elijah, if you remember their ministries at all. Certainly a great prophetic ministry coming out of the man Elijah. Tremendously powerful. A man that commanded fire from heaven to come down and devour his enemies. Do you recall any of that? And then you look at Moses, and he was able to turn the Nile, the, the, the waters, right into blood as he was challenging the prophets of the ungodly, as he stood in great power, anointed from God himself, the great I Am. And he acted upon that power. And God, through him, stunned the enemies. They were rebuked by him. God took his people into safety by his hand. So then we would maybe conclude if we were to read that passage and see these images of casting down fire, causing the water to turn to blood, we would then say, obviously, where are these images coming from? The man Moses and the man Elijah. Therefore, we are maybe waiting for Moses and Elijah to reappear. I'll share with you about these comments what is parallel, once again, Parallel, I say. The church experience is parallel to these ministries. Parallel to this Old Testament Israel. They are forefathers, yet we are children of promise. So it's not like we have no connection to the Old Testament whatsoever. We're just living out its realities in the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah of God. So how do we understand the rest of this passage in the number of 42? If you look at the ministry of Moses, if I can share with you yet again, if we look to the man Moses, because he clearly is being communicated here in chapter 11. The man Moses and his activity. If you've watched the movie, I have referred to it before, but I think I refer to it as under the wrong name. Pastor Dan is correcting me, I think, but I would call it Ben-Hur. Or I think that's it. Is it that maybe? You've seen the ministry of Moses on display in cinema. And you've seen his activities and all that's been communicated. And so clearly you would then take that and you would read this passage. Let me in fact just read for you. Verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Elijah. If anyone would harm them, reach out their hand to attack them physically. This is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power. These two witnesses have power to shut the sky that no rain may fall. Elisha, during the days that they're prophesying, and they have power over the water to turn it into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. This is the imagery that I'm referring to, and you've seen perhaps in popular cinema, these activities. So we're connecting it to the man Moses, and John is clearly wanting us to remember the ministry of Moses and the great power that God poured forth through him in attesting to his own glory and delivering his people. But we're looking at more than that, simply Moses. Yet if I could connect to the ministry of Moses, as I've shared with you, okay, if you're following me to this point, what is the meaning of this passage? We're going to get there. 
And coming out of Exodus, out of Egypt, and they are brought forth into this wilderness wanderings. Who was the man, yet again, who led them through this wilderness time? It was the man, Moses. And this age, how long did they spend in this wilderness wandering? 42 years. Two years of transition coming into the wilderness. 40 years of wandering. 42 years. This isn't biblical magic or or spinning things around or being able to decipher with certain checkers and, and moves and I got you here and I'm coming around the back side. I'm deciphering. We're just simply looking. So far from chapter 9, we're clearly with a parallel with Israel in the Old Testament. Chapter 10, yet again, a parallel between Israel and the church. Chapter 12, wait till we get there. Big images coming out of Israel and the church. So too in chapter 11, 42 encampments of Israel in the wilderness wanderings under the ministry of the man Moses. We have image already in chapter 11, images of the man Moses' ministry. And we have this number arising to characterize an age of the church parallel to Israel. And the number arises from its origin, 42. Just the same. So now we're seven back to saying, so maybe the number, the, the, the 42 months, is broader than, than, than 30 day periods. It's an age. Nearer off of the wandering of Israel under the man whose clearly his image is present under the man of Moses. Forty-two months, or forty-two as it were to Israel, forty-two years. This you can look in the book of Numbers, I forgot to suggest you can look at that in the book of Numbers. You can kind of see some of those numbers break down in the thirty-fifth chapter, but you can study it all the way through to see the encampments of then to the next man, but then we have another man being communicated. So maybe we're seeing the origin of the number 42 arise out of this consistent picture of redeeming history of Israel and the church in a parallel community. Yet the church, a better community, a community of the Spirit and the gospel of Jesus Christ being led by him, not a shadow, being led by him in this age of trial and tribulation. What part do we see in the imagery of Elijah? How does Moses and Elijah come together in this 42-month age? And if we were to pause, we would hear from Luke. If you want to turn there, or I can read it for you in Luke chapter... um, I'll read it for you. Luke chapter 4, verse 25, if you want to jot this down. In light of the 42 months... We have another image that is growing out of this passage, as I suggest to you. There's 42, there's 1260, and there's a time, times, and half a time. This three and a half. And the images of Moses is present, turning the waters into blood, and Elijah casting fire upon his, image, upon his enemies. So we see these two men's images arising. And we see this number connected to Moses so far in the 42 years of the wilderness wandering the origin of the number, and yet we're going to see it again in the ministry of the same man, Elisha. Jesus speaks of it this way about the three and a half years you're seeing here in connection to the man, Elijah. He says this in Luke chapter 4, verse 25. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. The exact images being communicated to us here, the man of fire. When the heavens were shut up three years and six Months. And a great famine came over the land. Jesus here speaking of the three and a half years, the 42 months of Elijah's ministry, as characterized as one of judgment. We have its origin coming from the wilderness wanderings that clearly we are in concert to since chapter 9 and As I said, we'll see yet again very boldly in chapter 12. So we're in this wilderness context, and we're being led by this imagery, the witnessing community of a man so bold as Moses. And 
We're seeing the origin of the number being led through the wilderness wanderings. Now we're hearing the character of this age as one of judgment being cast upon the enemies of the Lord to the ministry of Elijah, as Jesus makes mention of Elijah in Luke chapter 4, 25. Three and a half years. That's the same number we're seeing here. And it's communicating the ministry of the same man, Elijah. So we have its origin, wilderness, wanderings, parallel to the church community in these last days. And it's a time of judgment. Yet I want you to know, it's not simply a time of judgment. Remember, church, be strengthened. It's a time of certainly final witness of the church community in the gospel age. A time of judgment being cast upon the enemies of Christ. And yet, as the church will suffer those effects, they have a time of divine protection, don't they? Be strengthened. See, in that moment, maybe, I don't know what was taking place. In this moment, I'm calculating with this man. And maybe I'm, I'm thinking through these categories. I made a bad calculation, I think. Thinking may, maybe more we're thinking in light of sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and calling this one to repentance, we're thinking more about outcomes negatively. It's going to be really bad for me right now if I just start breaking into the gospel. I get the sense from the conversation so far, so I'm just probably not going to. And we lose the force of these passages. God's power attends God's word proclaimed through God's church. Instead, I'm looking at this time of awkwardness, maybe a judgment being cast, maybe a total breakdown and embarrassment. Same too with this passage. There's yet another number that's present. And that number communicates meaning also. <laughs> You're like, oh great, where are we going to dig this one up? 1260 days. You remember? So we have 42 months in verse 2. In verse 3, if you look right there, you see it's reflected. The same age is spoken of with yet another number. It's the same age. It's not a 42 months and then someday another 1260 days and then maybe a final outpouring of a time, times, and half a time. These are three images communicating the same era. What is the significance of, why did he go from 42 in one verse all the way over to 1260? What's going on? I think there's tremendous insight if we just look. 1260 is mentioned twice between chapters 10 and, uh, excuse me, chapter 11 and chapter 12. In both of the references to 1260, which is the same number as 42, because everyone but me makes sense of this, because me particularly, I am not numerically oriented. I see a number and I break down. I cannot see through it. I gotta go and pour over it. So for me, this is a lot of legwork right here for all of you putting these numbers together. You're all with me though. You get it. You're all number people. So you're like, that makes sense. That makes sense. That makes sense. <laughs> all these engineering computer nerds, they're numerically oriented. So I share with you then, we have this 42 and we have a 1260, and we're saying it's speaking about the same era, why different ways? 1260 mentioned twice in coordination with God's promise to care for his church. Look at the meaning of the number being communicated. As you ask the question, why is it being communicated the same era and a different number? Look at what's attached when that number is born. 1260 is used twice. Both speaking. During this difficult age of 42, God's presence tends to his people nourishing in this 42-month age. Oh, if we could remember that in a moment at Home Depot in tremendous awkwardness. I'm in the age of 42 months with this individual. Oh, if I would remember in this 1260-day period, the Lord nourishes Encourages them and carries them gently when they stumble. Empowers them with mercies anew to continue witnessing 
this difficult time. Just look sometime at 42, 1260, and time, time, time. You'll see the man Moses, the man Elijah. In 1260, you'll see another number, same number, communicating another meaning. In this difficult age, the Lord will nourish his own. So as we get beyond the number, its origin and its meaning, as we see it has difficult meaning in the 42 months of judgment and casting and outpouring of wrath upon the enemies of God and through the final witness era of the church they are nourished in this same period we get to the heart of this morning's passage if I could read for you verse 4 through 6 yet again and we will come back and final uh, make some final comments coming soon these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth if anyone would harm them fire pours forth from their mouth and consumes their foes. If he is doomed, this is how he is doomed to be killed. Verse 6, they have the power to shut the sky. No rain may fall in the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. What is the force of these images now as we're reminded by the ministry of Elijah and Moses? This is communicated to the church, the children of the promise that we preach along with Elijah and Moses, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in great power. Oh, if I could just remember that. And you could so be strengthened. But built upon the images of these wonderful prophets of power stands the church. The gospel is a message of Power. In this message of the Lord Jesus Christ reigns, we are calling for a people to repent and we are warning them of coming judgment. This is the imagery of fire that consumes the enemies of God. You didn't think there for a moment that really someone was coming in the future days to breathe fire upon another individual, did you? No, you didn't. Neither did I. And together we are seeing it's a word of judgment cast through the power of the gospel to devour the enemies of God. This happens through the gospel. It is a message of power. Power to save and power to punish. How do you feel, church, vested with the power and the ministry of the gospel? Do we feel we're possessing a ministry of power or a ministry of sheer foolishness? Can we be so strengthened to remember the power of the gospel? God's word, power, tends to God's word proclaimed through God's church. Fire comes forth and consumes. God spoke this way to the prophet Jeremiah. If you should jot this down, it's Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 14. He said, Thus saith the Lord, I am making my words in your mouth a fire. I am making this people wood. This fire will consume them. The prophet Jeremiah speaking forth judgment upon the enemies of the Lord. I will make my word in your mouth fire. I will prepare them as they desire a people of wood. And this gospel will go forth and accomplish its work. A power to save and a power to punish. Where are you, might I ask you this morning? Are you experiencing the power of the gospel to save? Or are you under the weight and the power of the gospel to punish because you've disregarded it and won't submit to the risen Lord? This is the work of the power of the gospel. Let us finish our text this morning 
by looking at verse 7. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them. Sounds like that in the nursery. All of you are hearing it, right? I, I, I was talking with someone about preaching the apocalypse and uh, about the images and image upon image and image upon image, and I was able to encourage them. They supply an audio, uh, audible, uh, <laughs> foreshadowing experience of great judgment, do they not? One week, I think it sounded like a child. Uh, no, if it, I think it was Joel. I'm not sure. <laughs> Just kidding. He was being skinned alive under the nursery workers, and... Um, and it was great. It was in perfect coordination with the release of the bottomless pit uh, uh, viper who was released and, and all of his attending minions who were the locusts that are devouring the people. And there's Joel in there being skinned, as it were. And it served our great dark apocalypse perfectly. So they serve a tremendous ministry. In verse 7, we see the same as the child is coming undone from their chair. It is the release of the beast. And the response is fitting. For he rises from the bottomless pit and he makes war on the witnessing community. And he conquers them and he kills them. This is what I have suggested to you in this period of final witness. The church is indeed secure in Christ. Yet they are vulnerable to attack. And the beast rises and kills Another word here to some of you students coming along with the book as we study through it. We realize earlier I've said we're not to take the book chronologically so that we would go, oh, chapter 9 happens, then that ends in human history. Chapter 10 begins, and then it ends in human history. Chapter 11 begins into chapter 12, and then it ends in human history. And we read it that way. You can see here there's a great warning against doing so. The beast has just been mentioned as released and doing his dirty deeds, and yet we haven't even been introduced to him. Who is he? We're not introduced to him until chapter 12. And then we find out who he is in chapter 13. But yet the church is born in chapter 11. So again, we're seeing the book of Revelation differently than simply tracking it chronologically. And that's important because we can see it evidenced right here. The beast in his work is already being told. What do I think this beast is? Or what do I think this passage is communicating in relation to the beast being released and killing if it's More than two witnesses, if it's the church, we just heard that the beast killed the church. What do you think is taking place here with the beast in relation to the witnesses? I think that the period here being expressed about the beast who is making warfare is that it is a period of human history that is right before a time of the return of Christ. This is a period spoken of here, if you look in your passage, right, as we're progressing through the passage, we find that it is a time that is mentioned as three and a half days. Another number, another image, another thing being communicated. Well, quite easily we could be able to see the contrast between exactly between the church's victory for 42 months an age of 1260-day provision, a longer duration than the simple wrathful outpouring of the beast for three and a half days. Again, the, the numbers, how are we handling in comparison to one another? One of longevity, one of force, one of overcoming, one of limitation, and obviously much less than 1260 days. Three and a half days. So what do I think is happening here? It is intense. It is, it is distinguishable within human history. And it is right before the return of Christ when the most wrathful experience of trial and tribulation will be experienced upon the earth. I think there is no doubt about it. So do I think that human history is going to continue as it is all the way to Jesus Christ? And this is it. I do see right here in this passage an intensification of the time of trial and tribulation for a short period of time right before the return of Christ. Do I think it's only three and a half days? Obviously not. Yet do I think it's intense and shorter than the victory of the church? Yes, I do. And I think that's clearly being communicated here. If we make it all the way, if, if you'll come back, and we'll make it all the way to Revelation chapter 20, 
I think what we're seeing right here in chapter 11 is the vision that we're also going to see in Revelation chapter 20, verse 3. John looks upon the thousand years, and when they're ended, this age of church victory, this age of gospel proclamation, yet trial and tribulation, this millennial age, when it comes to consummation, Satan is released. And it is a devastating effect upon all the peoples. He has given authority, it says, for uh, guess how long? They're like, what? Don't throw me another number. My mind is just twisted right now. For a little while. That's the easiest one to handle. All right. I get the idea of a little while. It's working off of the same imagery. Three and a half days. He's granted authority for a little while. The book is going to give you yet another number. In chapter 14, speaking of the relation of the beast and seeking to devour the church, guess what? He's given authority by the time we get to chapter 13. It is for, his authority in that time is for one hour. So we have him with great authority pursuing the church of Christ to decimate her and those who even worship him. Everybody is under attack for one hour, for three and a half days, and for a little while. Everybody is going to be devoured by the beast and his minions. What sets apart the people who won't be consumed? The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what seals you. Against the warfare of the second death. Will Christ's church perhaps die by martyrdom? I read for you even accounts, and we know vast accounts in church history say yes. We know vast accounts from the year 2010 that the answer is yes. Well, 2010, perhaps the greatest martyrdom year on record. Jesus says, be faithful even unto death. And the second death will have no hold on you. This is the reward. They will rise and be like him to be gathered unto him forever. This is the promise of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who would save his life or lose it? He who will lose his life in this age will find it. Let me just read with you the very last portion of this passage, and these are the truths that we see. The church community devastated by the beast, yet look, as we are indeed suffering as unto our Lord, we too will rise with him. Let me, if you would, follow with me through this passage as I simply read and then we conclude. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically, again, another way to interpret, symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and the tribes and languages will gaze at their dead bodies and they will refuse to let them be placed in tombs and Once again, the earth dwellers will rejoice over them. They will make merry. They will exchange presents because their gospel has been a torment. That narrow-minded, bigotrous gospel is a torment to those who dwell upon the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered into them. They stood up on their feet. And a great fear fell on all who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here! And they went up into heaven in a cloud. And their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest, they were terrified. And they gave glory to the God of heaven. 
Paul says, just like we read here, the return of the Lord was the cry of command. Come up here! A cry of command. And the seventh trumpet will sound. And we'll get there next time if you come back. And we'll see indeed the church of Christ will rise in victory over all of her foes. Can I share with you those who rise unto life eternal are those who have believed in Christ Jesus alone. Who have turned from their own selfishness. Who have turned and identified their own sin. And they have turned from him. And they have looked to Christ. And they have said, I need you. And he saves them from wrath. They transfer, it says, the Holy Scripture says they transfer from death unto life. Though you suffer, you will rise in his name. And to those who don't, who say, I I don't need his gospel. I don't need that narrow-mindedness. I'm better than that, above that, beyond that. Scripture also says a word on that testimony. They were raised too. They will be risen, only to go to a second death. And when he appears to Revelation, he says, they will wail on account of him. They will look upon him. Can I plead with you? church of Christ. Be bold in this age. For God's power tends to his word. Proclaim through his church. Let us pray. Our God, Lord Jesus, we exalt you and praise you for these words. Pray that you will strengthen my heart as I speak, as I engage, as I live out your call upon me and your great mercy and grace. And I pray for the congregation, the people of God, that they too will hear this passage of power and provision. And they will believe, though I could be killed, I will rise. I will rise. And the second death, that which matters, will have no hold on me. So God, empower us by your spirit to be faithful to your gospel here in this age for your glory in all things. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.